Would you uh, join your hearts with mine as I ask uh, God's blessing this morning? Oh God, by your Spirit, tell us what we need to hear and show us what we ought to do to obey and embody the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our scripture text this morning is Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, and this kind of concludes this series we've been doing on Romans, and here we are at that end point. We kind of peeled this back from chapter 16, and what we have seen throughout that whole story is a group of diverse and dedicated people who were divided in their church through internal conflict, who felt persecuted and and kind of attacked by a hostile culture outside their congregations, and also by a government that was also hostile towards them. So they had internal and external conflict. And Paul is trying to tell them how to live through this, how to live through these conflicts eternally, in, internally and externally. And then he kind of brings it all right back down to here. This verse right here, verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12, is the launching pad for the entire argument Paul brings through those last chapters of Romans. It also is the culmination of all that he has written about before in chapters 1 through 11. So Romans 12, this, these two verses are the hinge, if you will, on which the book of Romans turns. It is the crux of it all. It is the fine point. It is where Paul distills it all down. And it is a text that focuses on really the heart of what Summer's Best Two Weeks is all about, about putting God first in our lives. So Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, let's hear those words, let's listen to our God, and let's learn from Him this morning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lesson number one on God's holiness and the people's sinfulness was delivered in the form of instructions for offering sacrifices at the tabernacle. Now today, when we say that something was a real sacrifice, rarely do we mean that blood was shed. For us, sacrifice means giving something up or taking something on that costs us a little money or comfort or convenience. Sacrifice in the Bible, however, is the bloody reality of a bellowing animal being butchered on an altar. Imagine the sensory overload of this experience, the violent resistance of the animal, the spurting of blood, the feel of pulling the animal apart, the smell of its burning flesh and bones. Imagine the emotional and spiritual impact of offering this sacrifice, knowing that it was for your sin that made this death necessary. And imagine the frustration in knowing that you'll be back tomorrow or next week because you will sin again. Those words are from Nancy Guthrie. 
And it captures well that reality of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Could you imagine if that was your fate as a believer to do that, to bring an animal for sacrifice? The whole Old Testament system was about sacrifice, the shedding of blood. It was about death. That was what offering was about. Blood and death. And under that cult of the Old Testament, the way of worship under the the tabernacle and the temple, there was no such thing as a living sacrifice. It's an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. In the Old Testament, by necessity, all sacrifices were dead sacrifices. But then came Jesus. But then came the Lord Jesus, the final and finest sacrifice, the one who gave himself as a sacrifice for us, who shed his blood and died for us and rose again. Hebrews 10.10, and it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And beloved, it was with that death of Jesus Christ, with the offering of His body, that the whole paradigm shifted. The whole economy, the whole administration of sacrifice, the whole cult of worship shifted to a new one. One in which that oxymoron of a living sacrifice is now a true reality. Paul the Apostle could now write something that would seem like a contradiction in terms. He could say, because of Jesus' once and for all offering of His body, of His sacrifice, that now we, His followers, can offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And in our text, that's what Paul appeals to you to do. Paul writes to the Christian and says, this is your spiritual act of worship. He appeals to you to do this, to present your body, your body, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That is your and my spiritual act of worship. But what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God? Well, this morning in my sermon, I hope to shed some light on that, to answer it, at least in part, what that means to offer your body as a living sacrifice. And here in our text, the Apostle Paul tells us, in order to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, we need to do three things. Three things. The first is this. In order to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God, you must not be conformed. You must not be conformed. Romans 12.2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape, from C.S. Lewis. 
There are two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the heck is water? Do not be conformed to this world. What does that mean? What does it mean to not be conformed? What is Paul talking about? What is he telling us to avoid? The verb that Paul uses there, conform, do not be conformed to the world, it it has that image of a mold, of a pattern. Don't be conformed to the pattern or mold of this world. Some of you, particularly older folks, you will remember, this is not as popular anymore, but you remember like the jello mold. Right? That little thing with little ridges on it, you know, and you, you pour the jello in it. And then people put like really interesting things in that jello mold, right? I don't know, pineapple and bananas and all kind of crazy stuff. I mean, I never ate that stuff. It always kind of seemed kind of creepy to me. But you know what that is, right? You know how to make jello. You know what a jello mold is, how it conforms what is poured into it to a shape. And Paul says here, don't do that with your mind and your body, with your life. Don't pour it into the mold of this world. Don't conform it to this world. J.B. Phillips, in his translation of that verse, Romans 12, 2, writes it this way, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. What is Paul saying? He's saying don't be shaped, don't be formed, don't pour yourself, don't offer yourself into the mold of this world and the way that it thinks. So how are you doing with that? I'm guessing not well. I can say that because I'm a pastor, right? I deal with people all the time, people going through a lot of things, people wrestling with ways of thinking, people in trying to live in this world. And I can say that because I know it myself. It's, it's hard to not be conformed to this world. It's like that water, right? What is water? I'm living in it. I'm swimming in it every day, and it just starts to seep in. Conforming is so easy. You just pour yourself into the mold. You put it in the fridge, right? There it is. It doesn't take a lot of work to conform. It's the default setting of our lives, right? To actually not be conformed requires energy. It requires resistance. But to be conformed, all you got to do is pour yourself in and let it chill. Right? A lot of us are right there. David Foster Wallace, the the guy that had that little fish uh, thing I mentioned earlier, he gave a commencement address at Kenyon, uh, Kenyon College, and he talked about this conformity, about worship and how we just kind of default into something. It's a default setting, and he, he talks about various things that we worship, like money and stuff, sex and beauty power and intellect and fame, all of these things. And what he said in that address is this. He said, the insidious thing about these forms of worship, it's not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. 
They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. That's it, right? It's the fish in the water who don't realize they're in the water, who can't articulate it. What the heck is water? It's what N.T. Wright put it this way. He said, if anything, it's our surrounding culture that brainwashes us, persuading us in a thousand subtle ways. And that's how it plays out. It's in the subtleties of everyday life, just pouring yourself in. Conforming without even knowing you're doing it. I was reading recently uh, this book by Abigail Favale, who's a professor of humanities and English. She's a dean, actually, of her department at George Fox University. And she tells this tale in this book, The Genesis of Gender, about her own like trip through uh, her exploration of gender. She grew up in an evangelical household, and she was told a lot in her youth about you know, how really her purpose was to find a husband, but she wanted to study theology. And her whole world told her she couldn't do that as a woman. And so she got into college, an evangelical college, and she kind of went to the opposite, polar opposite of it all. She became and studied gender theory and became a professor and, and taught classes on this. And then one day she's in class and she's thinking about what she's thinking now. And she writes this in this book. She writes, I remember one particular class session when my students and I were wrangling with an essay by Judith Butler, a prominent gender theorist. In the essay, Butler rolls out her concept of gender performativity, gender as something we do rather than something we are. She goes on, like most critical theories, Butler writes in an almost uh, all but impenetrable prose, nonetheless, my students... So get this, she's in class, she's teaching this. My students readily embraced her idea of gender as performance. What they didn't fully recognize is that Butler asserts that gender is only a performance, that women don't really exist, and that any truth claim is ultimately an exercise of power. She goes on, these ideas, which might not have been so appealing to my students, remain well hidden below the surface, obscured under the opaque jargon. And then she concludes, my students skimmed along the topsoil, grasping a few blooms here and there, but they never got a good look at the root. She's sitting there as a professor and she's teaching this stuff and it kind of dawns on her that it's a little bit nonsense, right? But there are her students, like, you know, they're lapping it up and she gives that great description, you know, the skimming the topsoil, grasping a few blooms. That's how we absorb things. That's how things happen. That's how we come off into our understandings. We conform ourselves without even recognizing. And Paul says, if you want to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God, you have to resist that. You've got to stop doing it. J.B. Phillips, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Do not be conformed. So ask yourself, where does my opinion come from? Dig down into the roots. Why do I think what I do? Where do I absorb from 
What am I thinking? And is it biblical? Is it according to God's will? Or is it coming from somewhere else? So often we just embrace these ideas. Daryl Dash, a pastor in Toronto, talks about it in a sermon. Things like, God is okay, but he belongs in your private life. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. Find out what makes you happy and do that. Everything is okay as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Where does that come from? Why do we embrace it? How does it get into us? Paul is saying to us as Christians, we need to take a hard look at our lives, at our minds, how we think, how we behave, what we value, what we worship. We need to ask ourselves, what am I pouring my life into? And Paul says, don't pour yourself into this world, this age. And that's really the the word there for world. It's not cosmos. It's aeon. It's this age. And where does secular come from? It is this age, this worldly. Paul's saying don't conform your minds to this age, this secular world. But all around us, that's what's happening. And I see it in the church. Particularly around the issue of politics. How much we're obsessed with this age, this aeon. Every election is the most important election of our lifetime. People are obsessed in the church. They go down these algorithms, right? They go down in these deep places and they they get caught up in all of this stuff about we got to save the world. You don't. Jesus already did that. It's not about this age. It's about bread and wine. It's not about Biden and Trump. And so we can't take our minds and pour it into this world, into this age, and be obsessed with it. Russell Moore is right when he talks about that comparison. But in evangelicalism, he uses Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, right? In Narnia, it's always winter, but never Christmas. And Moore says about evangelicalism, it's always election day and never Easter. Yes. How is your mind working? What are you pouring yourself into? What do you care about? What are you willing to give yourself for? What do you think is most important? Paul says, don't pour your mind into the jello mold of this world, this aeon, this age. Why? Because it's passing away. Why give yourself to something that's passing away? Now, I'm not suggesting we should all retreat into some little turtle shell of a life. Politics matters, science matters, art matters, all this stuff matters. But when it comes down to it, what matters most is Christ and what God is doing in the world and how He thinks about the world. And you need to give yourself to that. In order to offer your body as a living sacrifice, you must not be conformed to this age. That's number one. Do not be conformed. Secondly, in order to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, you must be transformed. Not conformed, but transformed. If you want to offer your body as a living sacrifice, you must be transformed. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your minds. What does that mean? What does it mean to be transformed? J.B. Phillips translates that verse. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, 
but let God remold your minds from within. You see the emphasis there. Conformity is something we do. We conform our minds. We pour them into this mold. But transformed, being transformed is something God does with us. That we do, I should say, maybe better, with God's help. That we need God's help to remold our minds from within. It's about cooperating with God. And so here we come to a point where it's about our willingness to give over to God our minds. To give it to God. The Scripture talks about present to God, right? The image is of the Old Testament sacrifice. What did you do as a believer? You brought your sacrifice. You presented it on the altar. You presented it, if you will, before God. And now, what are you called to bring before God your whole mind? God wants it. In order to be transformed in your mind, to be renewed in your mind, you need to give it to Him. The contemporary English version translates verse 2, Don't be like the people of this world, but let God change the way you think. Are you willing to let God do that? I mean, are you willing to give Him that much of yourself to say, God, you know, we had that sound, take my heart, right? Take my mind. Teach me to think like you. Renew my mind. Thomas Terence uh, talks about this in an article he wrote, What God Wants from You. He's reflecting on Romans 12, 1 and 2, and he uses the analogy of a marriage. That this is really what Paul is talking about here. It's about giving yourself to God, your mind to God, as you would give yourself to a spouse in marriage with commitment, with allegiance, with the offering of the entirety of yourself. Of getting before the altar and saying, here I am, Lord, I'm yours. Take my mind, take my life, teach me how to think like you, to think your thoughts after you. To give in to self-surrender. If you want to be transformed in your thinking, you have to start by a willingness of giving yourself to God, of allowing Him to transform you. Are you willing to give yourself to Him? To surrender the idols of your heart, which most of all is your idol of I am right. Are you willing to give your mind to God? In order to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God, you must be willing to be transformed by Him. Give yourself over to Him. First, do not be conformed. Don't pour yourself into the jello mold of this world, right? But be transformed. Give yourself to God as one gives themselves in marriage to their spouse. Allow God to renew our way of thinking. And then third and finally, in order to offer your body as a living sacrifice, you must learn to discern. You must learn to discern. Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect so that you may discern what is the will of God. 
What is Paul talking about there? What does he mean by that discern? Some translations have that so that you may prove what the will of God is. You may test or approve what the will of God. It really is somewhat like the scientific method. Paul is talking about a process of, you know, in the scientific method, you take a, you come up with a hypothesis, right? You, you get a theory, you, you start to test that thing, right, over and over again and see if it works. Prove it. Paul is saying, if you resist being conformed to this world and are willing to be transformed by God, then you're going to engage in this process of living your life and testing and proving and showing what the will of God is. My daughter is working uh, you know, for a corporation where she's doing these tests, and sometimes she gets frustrated because she'll spend a week doing something and it doesn't work. But sometimes you learn so much by what doesn't work, right? That's kind of what Paul's talking about. It's this process of testing. And over time, if you do that, if you're willing to, to put to work the will of God in your life, you begin to learn it. You begin to do discern what the will of God is, what is good, what is acceptable and perfect. It's kind of like I've been married now for 30 years with my wife, going back to that marriage analogy, right? You have a relationship with someone and you kind of learn things, right? You say dumb things in your marriage sometimes. Anybody ever done that? <laughs> I've done a lot, right? But over time, you know, unless you're really dense, <laughs> you kind of learn, right? And now at the 30 years, I've learned a few things. And my wife and I, we can communicate across a room with our eyes and we know exactly what each of us is thinking. She can finish my sentences. She knows all my jokes. <laughs> because what? You've had this relationship, this familiarity, born out in real life, right? Trial and error, test. And that's what Paul is saying. If you are saying, if you're willing to not conform to this world, to give your mind over to God over time in this relationship, which is like a marriage, you're giving himself, you're giving of yourself to him, you'll begin to learn and discern. Learn what God wants. You're not going to get it right all the time. In fact, you're going to get it wrong a lot of the time. But sometimes it'll sink up in your mind and you'll feel it. You'll feel yourself in the will of God like a groove. You ever been riding along on a bicycle and you're, you're bopping along, right? And there are all these bumps and then you hit that kind of rut there in the trail and you're gone, right? That's what it is. It's like that. I was reading, uh, I was Someone shared with me an article by Tom Bugart, the year I was a Christian. And it's about this, this couple that was recalling their time in the Netherlands and how they helped these Syrian Christian refugees in this one year, right? The year I was a Christian. And in that one year, looking over their entire Christian life, it was that year that they knew that they were really a Christian. In that year, they understood what it was to discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what it's like. It's that willingness to grow with God, to learn to discern. And you get there by saying, I'm not going to learn from this world. I'm going to learn from you, God. I give my mind to you, and I want this relationship with you. And over time, you begin to discern what the will of God is. It's really ultimately a choice. 
Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 is really what it's about to be a Christian. If I could distill it down to two verses, this is what it is. Not a nominal Christian, not a, a, not a halfway kind of Christian, but a real, serious, authentic Christ follower, a pick-up-your-cross kind of Christian. It comes down to this choice we make. A choice between two options we have of how to live our lives. Many scholars have noted that this passage in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 has a parallel passage earlier in Romans, Romans 1, 18 through 32. That what Paul is doing here is making bookends of his argument, right? He starts out in Romans 1, he ends in Romans 12. And what you do, and this little chart shows that you will read those texts, you will hear these recurring themes that appear in both of them. There are options about ways to live, right? One is pouring yourself, conforming yourself to this world. The other is giving your heart and mind and soul and strength and all of who you are to God. Listen again to Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness, of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth, right? They're conforming their mind to this world. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world, His internal power and divine nature. And so Paul talks about how God has shown Himself, right? His way. But then what does he say about them? But they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. They poured themselves into the jello mold of the world. And what happened then? Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the degrading of what? Their bodies. What we do with our bodies matters. In Romans 12, it's about sacrificing that body to God. In Romans 1, it's about doing things with that body which is self-centered. Giving yourself to other things. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, idolatry of the heart. Verse 28, And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, the jello mold. And what did they do? They did all that was opposite to the will of God. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They did not discern the will of God. And so you see it there in that chart, right? One's about God's wrath. Romans 12 is about God's mercy. In Romans 1, we see people refusing to give thanks to God and glorify Him. In Romans 12, it's about giving a thankful sacrifice of your whole life to God. In Romans 1, it's about dishonoring the body. In Romans 12, it's about offering our bodies. Senseless and irrational and idolatrous worship. In Romans 12, it's about understanding what true rational worship is. A worthless mind versus a renewed mind. Rejecting God's just sentence, rejecting His will for the world, approving the will of God. Paul is bringing it all down to a fine point. This is what it's about to be a Christian. This choice, this choice before you, what do you want to do with your body, your mind? 
And so it comes home to you, right? It comes home to all of us. What choice are you willing to make? To whom are you sacrificing yourself? Into what mold are you pouring your mind? To whom are you offering your body? And it's a fundamental question because God doesn't want bulls and goats anymore. Right? He doesn't want that. What He wants is you. He wants all of you. Think about that. When these words in this text about body and mind, they're synecdoches for all of who we are. John Kelvin put it this way when he talked about Paul's use here of offering our bodies. He writes, but by bodies, Paul does not mean only our skin and bones, but the totality of which we are composed. God wants all of you. C.S. Lewis, it's not so much of our time or so much of our attention that God demands. It is not even all our time and all our attentions. It is ourselves. God wants you. All of you. Sally Chessman put it this way in Wind Chimes. In poetic verse she wrote, when he comes at midnight, he does not ask a tree, a crash, a star, a candle. Only me. Only me. Beloved, God wants all of you. The question for you is what are you willing to offer to him? What are you willing to present to him? Because God wants it all. He wants your life for Him as a living sacrifice. He wants all of you. What are you willing to give? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard this morning these words from the Apostle Paul inspired by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, they are overwhelming. They are challenging words. But they're beautiful at the same time that we have a God who's interested in us, our whole being, who we are as people. A God who loves us so much, who says, I will show you how to flourish and thrive. And we hear the call of Christ this morning, whose simple words to every disciple is just this, follow me. Put down your nets. Give me your hearts and minds. Follow me. Help us, O oh God, to do just that. To pick up our cross, to offer our minds and bodies and hearts.